The following is a presentation of Highlands Church, helping de-churched people become more fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit us at highlandsadventure.org. If you're here for the first time, I hope you feel what an awesome and amazing church this is. And um, I... I just hope you feel that this is an amazing group of faith followers. We're not perfect people, but we follow a perfect God, and, and God makes us perfect. And we welcome those listening on podcast. Our research team today, or this last week, told us an amazing thing, that we, we have people listening in Aichi, Japan, apparently. So we say konnichiwa to our friends in Japan today, and we welcome you to the central coast of California. Well, we're beginning a new series today that'll take us right through to Christmas, which is only three weeks away, by the way. And this series is called Raising hope. And we're going to talk about the power of hope, what it is. And our prayer is that all of us would have more hope this season and into the new year and for the rest of our lives than we've ever had. I don't know how your Christmas living room looks, but mine looks nothing like this. By the way, isn't this an amazing thing that this group does? It's just every year. My living room looks nothing like this. Part of the reason is Star and I decided that we were going to have kind of a a humble Christmas this year. We were going to cut back, which is a good idea, in a recession. We were going to not buy as many presents, and we weren't going to spend as much on like a Christmas tree. We weren't going to go down to the lot and spend $50 to $100 on a Christmas tree. We just weren't going to do that. We were going to go cut down our own Christmas tree. Now, apparently, it costs $50 to $100 to go cut a Christmas tree in a Christmas tree lot. So I decided that what we would do is cut down a Christmas tree in my backyard. Now, I had in mind that this tree would be, have you ever seen that Norman Rockwell picture of a guy with an axe over his shoulder and like the tree? I had this image in my mind that this, this would be this really amazing moment. My daughter would be there. She would say, timber, daddy, timber, as, as this thing was coming down. And and, and, and I had this feeling, I had this image in my mind, and this, what I'm talking about is critical of what I'm about to talk about today, this, this vision in my mind that this tree would actually bring the family together in a new way. The other Norman Walkwell picture of, of the father at the top of the table with the turkey and, and, and all of the fixings and the family all smiling. And, and I, I even thought it could be like a national movement, right? So we, I would start it, I would share it with you. We, maybe the White House would have, they'd cut down their own little tree. We wouldn't spend as much money on trees. If you saved money on trees, we could start a new project like Waiting for Trees or Compassion for Trees International or, or, or Life Tree. And all that money could go to something. And obviously that's not exactly what happened. Have you ever noticed how things are a lot bigger outside than they are on the inside? When you cut them down outside, it looks like it would fit. I cut this tree down and it was not going to fit. So I had to cut it and 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 cut it. And this is an actual picture of the tree in my living room. (laughs) Kid you not. My tree makes the Charlie Brown Christmas tree look like it belongs in Rockefeller Center. But you know, I don't care because Haley doesn't care. and, And I had a chance to hope to have that vision in my mind. And I wouldn't trade that for the world, that vision, that, that image of what my tree could be. We're going to talk about that, that visioning process. I don't know what you think of when you think of hope, but the best definition as I've thought about it for these last months and as I've done some research, the best definition is a person looking out over a precipice and seeing that thing that they have in mind and saying two words, what if? What if? That's hope. 
Now, we're going to be talking about hope over these next couple of weeks together, but we're also going to talk about faith because you can't actually have faith without hope. The Bible says that, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, right? So what is faith? That's sort of a different definition. Faith is looking out over a precipice and saying the words, what will be? And you can't get to a what will be in your life unless you have the ability to think of a powerful what if. So we're talking about that, and I want you to think about that. We're going to continue to come back to this all morning. But but the person we're going to look at in this series is a man by the name of Isaiah, who lived at a very, very dark time. He was a man who lived about 587 B.C., and a man told me this last week. I prayed with him. He said, I've had a really bad week. I said, I'm sorry. Let's pray. But I'm going to tell you on Sunday about a man who had a bad millennium, a bad thousand years. Actually, we don't know where Isaiah lived or where, where he came in the times. It could have been 800 B.C., could have been 587 probably. But just to give you a picture of Isaiah's world, he, he talked into a world that had the Assyrian invasion in 900 B.C. He talked into a world that had the Babylonian invasion in 593 and then 587. They basically destroyed the temple. If you can imagine destroying the capital in, in Washington and everyone in the country coming under slavery, that's what happened. And then, again, the Persians came a little thereafter, and they conquered the country, and a little thereafter, the Ptolemites came, the Egyptian Greeks came, and they took over, and then the Seleucids, and then the Romans. It was a bad 1,000 years. And out of that dark space, a man by the name of Isaiah closed his eyes, and he thought, what if? And he thought, what will be? And that's our text today. Isaiah begins talking for the first nine chapters. And by the way, pick up the book of Isaiah this Christmas sometime. If you're at work, if you're driving, well, not when you're driving, but pick it up some other time in your morning when you have a cup of coffee or if you go to bed at night, just open Isaiah. You will find total power in any of the pages of Isaiah. But we're going to take a look at chapter nine. For nine chapters, he's been talking about all the darkness. It just couldn't get any darker for this place that he lived in. And then he says in verse 1 of, of chapter 9, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom. I just love the word gloom. I'm going to start to use it more. Gloom is not depression. It's not, it's not angst. It's not desperation. It's sort, of, it's sort of a fog. It's a malaise. Gloom. There's an old, uh, I love that old hymn, Lead kindly light amid encircling gloom. Did you know that most people today live in gloom? The world lives in gloom. Most of the world doesn't live in depression or deep darkness, although some people do. But most people just live in a gloom. And this is what Isaiah is talking about. But I love, he doesn't say there's going to be a little less gloom. He doesn't say there's going to be, um, you're going to have more better days than worse days. He said there's no more gloom. Those who were in distress in the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. In the future, he belonged to the Galilee of Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. He's really saying he's giving meaning to what happened, which we'll talk about next week. One of the ways we get hope in our lives is understanding why things happen to us. Meaning. That's one of the things God gives us. But here's the main part. Verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. These were the words that sound familiar. John the Baptist said 600 years after Jesus, or right after Isaiah, 600 years, a man, another prophet, was on the banks of the Jordan, and he said, this is his main sermon, people walking in darkness have seen a great light. That was his sermon. 
And then it says, and those living in the land of the shadow of death. Do you remember? Have you ever heard those words before? The shadow of death? The valley of the shadow of death? 300 years before Isaiah, a man named David said those words in a song. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. By the way, that's how you know a good prophet from a bad. It sounds like everything else that every other person of God has said. If you ever find somebody who says something that isn't exactly right, it probably isn't. It's got to sound like the people who talk about God correctly. And he continues, you have enlarged the nation, you have increased their joy. If you haven't heard Katie's sermon last week on joy, you need to listen to it. It's on podcast. It's so articulate. They rejoice before you. The re- people rejoice at the harvest as men rejoice when dividing up the plunder. I thought about kids opening Christmas presents as I read that. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Here, Isaiah, by the way, his name is Yeshyahu in Hebrew. Yeshyahu literally means God saves. But Yeshyahu says, basically, he talks about a yoke, like a, a yoke on an oxen. And he's saying that will be destroyed. And in the next sentence, verse six, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Do you see the reverse parallel? The yoke on our shoulders will be destroyed, and the yoke will be put on this Savior. I can't tell you how powerful it was for me when somebody told me, Graham, you are not the pastor of your church. I said, I'm not. No, Jesus is. You just work for him. The yoke came off my shoulders, and I put it on God's. Let me show you what that feels like. You are not the parents of your kids. God is. You just work for him. You're the nanny. And so it's their fault. It's God's fault. Whatever. (laughs) See, you already feel better. You're not the breadwinner of your family. You're not the one who has to provide for their needs. Jesus Christ does. You just carry his briefcase. You're not the one who has to come up with all the answers for your family and for your life. God will. You just follow along. You see what I'm saying? Take the pressure off of you and put it on God. This is what happened. But we shouldn't gloss over this line. To us, a child is born. I mean, nobody knew what this God might be. Nobody even knew if God would ever come, right? But if God did come in the middle of that darkness, it would probably be in the form of a lightning bolt or thunder or, or an earthquake or, or a fireball from the sky. But, but Isaiah closes his eyes and he says, what if, no, what will be? will be a child. He will be born to us. And he gives him the name. It's almost as if he's thinking through the years, 600 years into the future, it will be wonderful counselor. I talked to my dad this last week, and this never happens, but my dad is preaching this very text this morning. I said, well, what are you saying about wonderful counselor, dad? And he said, well, I'm saying that God makes the decisions in our lives. He helps us to know which paths to go down so we don't have to worry about that. He gives us good advice even though the world gives us bad advice. That's pretty good. I said, I'm going to have to say that this on Sunday. <laughs> Wonderful counselor, mighty God. El Gabon, I love that. That's the Hebrew. It means strong God. El Gabon. Amy Grant and now Vince Gill sang that song, El Shaddai. Someone needs to write a song called El Gabon. Strong God. And I love this final part. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Greg just prayed about peace. Everlasting peace. He will be peace itself. Well, I don't know about you, but I love hopeful people. I love people who, in the midst of darkness, can actually see through it all and see something that other people can't see. I want you to think about somebody in your life who is like the most hopeful person. 
They, they are always hopeful, even when it doesn't make sense. I don't know if anyone followed the news this last week, but the stock market went up 400 points on Wednesday. Did you see that? I was really excited, even though I don't have any stocks. I like to think that someone is making money somewhere in the world. And, and, and so I looked at it, but apparently the stock market went up 400 points because we loaned money to the Europeans. Because the European Union, the European markets were in flux. Don't you love that phrase, in flux? If anyone ever, if a doctor ever tells you you're in flux, give me a call. We need, we're in trouble, okay? Influx is not good. As in two weeks away, the European markets were about to collapse. We loaned them a bunch of money. Now, I don't know about you, but that just doesn't seem like a good idea to me. Does it to you? I mean, I get the arguments and such, but we are $10 trillion in debt. $10 trillion. Just in case you can't work the math out on that, that's $86,000 per household. I hope you have a good day. God bless. <laughs> so... So things are really, really dark for us. They are. I mean, I don't care if you're talking to Republicans or Democrats, who's running for office. I don't care who's in charge, but most people are very negative about our future economically, except for one man. He lives in San Antonio, Texas. He is a retired postal worker. He lives in a two-bedroom apartment, and he has lived there for the last 20 years with his family He is here shown picking up bottles and cans. He does that every single day. And for the last 20 years, he has been sending $50 a month to the federal government to pay off the national debt. His name is Atasio Garcia. And this is what Atasio Garcia recently said, I am a believer in our country. He's an army veteran. Until the debt is paid off or until I die, I'm going to keep giving. He said, God willing, I will continue to do as much as I can for my country. Now that's hope. Hope comes from people who don't seem like they can do anything to make a difference. Hope comes from places that are so dark and that the experts and the intellectuals and the the economic elites can't figure things out. Hope comes from that place. And that's what God is giving us today. It's a sense of saying, what if? Atasio is saying, what if? So I want to think with you about this. And for this next week, I want you to think about what is your hope in your life? What is your what if? And you might have a whole bunch of them, but I encourage you to start thinking about it. As I did it this last week, it was a weird thing. I'm going to talk about this next week. It takes courage. So next week's message is going to be all about courage because it takes courage to to have a what if, right? Because it's being emotionally and spiritually vulnerable. You're out there because you wouldn't want to be disappointed. So we're going to talk about courage next week. But as I began to think about what if in my life, I was, it became contagious. I'm like, well, what if this? I mean, think about it. What if, what if your kids were supremely happy in their lives as they grew up? What if, not just happy that they would be with the perfect partner or even if God didn't call them to be with a husband or a wife, that somehow they would be complete in Jesus Christ. They would, they would just be these people who were totally fulfilled. What if? And what if your spouse had the same thing? And, and what, if, what if this whole area uh, became the, the beacon of light for not just the central coast, but for the all of California? Let's say that people came to Pastor Robles' pilgrimage to get something of what we're about here. And maybe bigger than that. I mean, I don't know. What if? 
you start to think about what if this next week. It's a key part of faith. And as you do that, I want to just encourage you to think about a couple things. Number one is we all need more hope. We all do, right? I mean, what if can go two different directions, right? What if the bad things is called fear? That's the definition of fear. If you're thinking what ifs about what if that bad thing happens, what if that bad thing happens, then you're being consumed by fear. If you are being consumed by hope, consumed may not be the right word, then you're thinking what if positively, positively. But let's talk about it. We all need more of this. I heard about a guy who was taking an Atlantic ship uh, from a Caribbean cruise, and he was one of these people who's really, 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 really seasick. As soon as he got on, he's just throwing up and throwing up and just having a terrible time. And the steward sees him throwing up over the side of the boat. And he says, sir, I just want you to know nobody has ever died of seasickness. The guy said, oh, don't tell me that. It's only the hope of dying that has helped me to keep alive. <laughs> Hopefully that's not you. But I will say it is only hope that keeps us alive. The Bible says those who don't have what ifs perish. That's the good definition of vision. Those who don't have hope, perish. Those who don't have vision, perish. So think about this. You know, I was thinking about, can you believe we're into our seventh year of this church? This next year will be seven years. It's like a benchmark. I can't believe that this wonderful creation of God's, but you know, it began earlier than seven years ago. It began nine years ago at least. When three retired pastors, or one retired pastor, one developer and one church executive came up to the Central Coast and they said, what if there was this really out-of-the-box church? That's all they had. They didn't have any concrete idea about what the vision would be. Now, eight years ago, I got to be a part of some of the what-ifs. And I was looking at my notes. This is such a big year coming up. I was thinking how important it is to think back to what what-ifs we had. I, I wrote these in, in the back of a book that I was reading at the time. What, what if a church had cowboys and winemakers and surfers and retired people and people of all ages. What if we we didn't have this judgmental church, even though we were totally focused on the cross and on the doctrines, historic doctrines of the church? What if I wrote in the back of my book, what if it was a whole bunch of evangelical churches together, people of different backgrounds? What, What if it had a church that had guts to do big gutsy things that really connected with people? Those were some of my what ifs. But I will tell you at this juncture, seven years, you know, we might say, you know, what are your what ifs? Because it ain't my what ifs anymore. It's, it's yours. What are your what ifs here? As we think about this. But I will tell you what happens with what ifs. What ifs, we get out there with hopes. And then we have this fog that comes in, this gloom. And it begins to seep in. And we actually begin to convince ourselves after a while that the gloom's not so bad. Right? The world lives in gloom. Fog famous story of a woman named Florence Chadwick, 1952, July 4th. She was the first woman to try to swim from Catalina Island to Long Beach. And she got in the water. It was icy cold. It's treacherous. Rewind your mind to the intro video. And she got in the water that morning and she swam and she swam. But the fog was so thick, she literally couldn't see her arms. She couldn't see the boat that was ahead of her. The boat had to shoot shots into the sky from a gun so that she could hear where that where that boat is, but she started to lose kind of her bearing. She didn't know which, which angle was up. She didn't know where the water was. She was just totally in this fog. And a thousand feet from the shore, she said, I'm quitting. I, I can't do this. And they said, no, no, you're almost there. She said, no, no, I'm not. I'm out of here. 
she got out of the water because the fog, the gloom had, had come in and pervaded. If she'd have known, really known how close she was, she wouldn't have gotten out. But that's what happens with, with the fog in our lives. So that's the first thing. Don't let the fog and the gloom come and pervade your life. Second thing, just as important is, you know, we all have to be a little like Isaiah in this process. We have to be like prophets. We have to close our eyes and look to the future of what God is going to do, what ifs and what will be. And now when I talk about prophecy, I got to be careful. One of the groups of people that I will always cherish and have learned so much from are the charismatics who have come to Highlands since the beginning. I love charismatics. I've learned how to pray differently. I've learned how to worship differently. This church would not be here without the charismatics who came to our church. God bless them. Early on, though, I had a, a guy who came into my office from that tradition, and he said, I have a word of prophecy for you. I'm like, cool. I need one right now. And he said, well, it's not a good one. Oh, okay. Actually, it's really bad. All right, well, what is it? Well, he said, I, don't, I can't tell you exactly what it is, but you have really bad things in your future. This is what you would call a bad what if. That's called planting fear. By the way, anybody who even has a bad prophetic vision for you, it better end up in a good place or it's not a real prophetic vision. By the way, let's talk about prophetic visions in another day. Because one of the things we we believe about them is they have to be upheld by the tradition of the thousands of years, right? Isaiah sounded just like David, sounded just like John the Baptist. But anyway, anyway, so this guy left me with this fear. I talked to the steering team about it. This is really getting me down. And then... I remember uh, getting a phone call from him about three months later, true story, and he said, oh, by the way, that prophetic thing I gave you, that was meant for someone else, not for you. I'm like, really? Thanks. So to be the people of hope that God wants us to be, we've got to be like Isaiah, but not the what-if fears, but the what-if good what-ifs, the hopes. We had a huge, huge moment in our world, and the United States can't be proud of everything, but we can be proud of some things. We helped lead the national, international movement, the fight against AIDS in Africa. We, we helped with that. God did it. He did it through our country mostly. I don't know if you followed this, but in Africa, 1980s, remember, it was kind of hitting America, but it was really hitting Africa, and it was hitting a country that has already been hit by famine and, and war and all kinds of pestilence and is really a, a terrible thing. People basically said, this is so dark, no one is ever going to get out of this. Let's just write off the billion people or whatever who are going to die. And one man who was a rock singer by the name of Bono closed his eyes and he said, why? Why does it have to be like that? And he went to Washington and he started talking to Democrats and Republicans and, and business people. And, and then funny thing happened. There was this assistant pastor and then a pastor's wife and then a pastor in southern california a little church called saddleback and 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 the wife was reading about this her name was Kay warren and she said to rick rick you can't just build this big church this edifice to to whatever is going on in southern california we've got to go do something about this and he said we do and she said yes and he flew off to africa and that church got involved and lots of churches got involved and then this what if thing just started to happen I got to go to Africa with a girl by the name of Jenna Nardella from Lifewater. She's actually, she was 18. She graduated from school. She was living in the basement of Jars of Clay. Ever heard of that band? Something about bands and what ifs, maybe. 
And that band and she decided that they were going to start Bloodwater International and that, that this 18-year-old was going to somehow contribute to, to eradicating this disease. Now, it's a long way from being eradicated. But 6.2 million people now are being treated. More people are being treated than are not being treated. It was all about the, the what if. So God wants us to think ahead to what that is. And the last thing I just want to leave you with today is this. Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of all of our hopes and all of our faith. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of our what ifs and all of our what will be's. I love that old uh, Christmas hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem. How still we see the light amid the deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in the dark streets shining, an everlasting light, the hopes and the fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. The hopes, all of the good what-ifs, and the fears, all the bad what-ifs, are met in Jesus Christ. Another way of saying that is, you know, it really is important what we have our hope in. Do you know how many really nutty religions there have been throughout the history of the world that put their hope in all the wrong things? There was a faith in the Aborigine people, and they believed that, that their hope was found in an island's somewhere in the skies. And, and then there were the Romans who had this idea that their hopes could be found in the Elysian fields with a picnic. They were the pagan Finns who believed that their hope could be found in the east. We believe that our hope is found in, in Jesus. And I'll tell you why our hope is found there. Because if we believe, if our what if and our what will be is a man and a God who came and lived and died and came back to life again, if that's possible, then anything is possible. And I know that there are a lot of people, because I've been counseling a lot of you, who are in real gloom, who are in real darkness, and I understand why. I'm just reminded of a young author who was trying to write the great American novel, and he he wrote this book and he went to this old author and he, he said, this is the great book and he started to read it and the young author said, well, this is the story. Well, a young boy grows up in a little town and um, he has a mom and he has a house that is two stories, a tiny little house and the mom says, well, you know, when you go away, you can always come back and that light will always be upstairs in the second floor window for you. It'll always be there. So a little boy, he grows up and he goes off to the big city, he gets in trouble and he comes back he needs to come home and he comes back over that hill and he goes back into that city and the light is gone. And that young author looked at that great author and he said, isn't that a great story? And the old author said, you devil, you put that light back in that window. And I want to just tell everyone here today, you put that light back in your window. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you so much for this great what if and what will be and what is and what shall be. You are all of our fulfillment, all of our joy. Lord, I, I ask that you would help some of us who haven't dreamed and had visions and had hopes for so many years that you would give us those hopes again. Lord, if there are those here today who are full of hope, I pray that it would be contagious to people around them. Lord, as we think about the hope 
of this time of year. I pray that we would find our only hope in you. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Highlands Church, helping de-churched people become more fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit us at highlandsadventure.org.